In this episode, Christopher Yoshida, President and CFO at Northern Data AG, describes the demands of taking on a global role at a disruptive company, talks about the importance of demonstrating empathetic leadership, and explains why as CFO, you can't try to be exceptional at all things. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook, where each week you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Before we jump into the interview, we want to invite you, our listeners, to head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. We want to learn about how to make the CFO playbook even better. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. Chris, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited. So Chris, on the podcast, we obviously have CFOs of all different backgrounds, and we've heard some incredible journeys towards their current position. And yours is incredibly interesting as well, but it's actually taken a different background to many that we've seen where you've spent a huge amount of time in financial services of all different categories within that. And then only just recently in this last role, moved across to a technology company, become a tech executive and CFO at Northern Data. So can you speak a little bit about that journey and what at this stage uh, in your lengthy tenured career that made you decide to actually go on and take the role of CFO? Great question. And you think of your career, you know, I've often spoken when I was at Morgan Stanley or Carlisle of my career of how it was not linear, right? And I think it's all too easy for executives, especially in today's era where fallibility is sometimes uh, frowned upon, to talk about the dark days or the difficult days or the decisions that didn't go according to plan. But I can say simply put, if you had told me 22 years ago when I started my career as an analyst in investment banking at Goldman Sachs, that I'd be the CFO of a tech company in London, I probably would have challenged the assertion. Certainly not the road uh, most traveled, that's for sure. But for me, I think it's a number of opportunities that conflated together. One was, I think I've had 20 odd years, plus or minus, of capital markets and investor experience. Mm -hmm. I do think in today's age, where companies, especially tech companies, deal with both private and public capital markets, I think having a really deep understanding of how they've evolved, the depth, the challenges, the partners you have access to or that you don't, depending Mm -hmm. on where you are. And then really, I think, utilizing what is executive leadership or enterprise leadership that you've I've learned through 20 years of working at large institutions can really lend itself to being a successful executive at a disruptive technology company like Northern Data. But equally, in the role as a CFO, as much as you are the leader of the finance division and the organization of, of finance, you're really compiling a number of skills to the team. And I think that sort of, for me, was a, was a really makes a lot of sense having worked in mosaics and complicated organizational structures my entire career, you get used to having partners of of different roles, statuses. And partner, I use the term, is truly that of a collaborative aspect. I don't mean necessarily an equal, but I think I'm very used to working across regions, products, and I think this is a great use of my accumulated skill set of over two decades. 
but it's been great. What was it when the opportunity came up and you were considering whether to take it? What was it that convinced you that it was the right move? I think you're seeing it, unfortunately, play out live. And I don't want to say I foresaw the tech bubble bursting in the manner it has in the last sort of four to six weeks or even year to date. But I do think capital formation, understanding of capital markets is an area where you're going to live or die. You're going to see companies, unfortunately, great companies, I'm sure, struggle and perhaps cease to exist because of their lack of appreciation of how hard it is to raise capital and what the real costs are. I know we've lived in a decade post, actually more than a decade post the financial crisis, where rates were zero or negative, capital was freely available, good companies and bad companies were equally financeable, and investors, I think, lost sight of the need for a financial return. This idea that multiple expansion and non-profitable businesses continue to grow is a little irrational. And and so I think for me, that background and maybe some of my cynicism, uh, I think, was being able to be applied to this role And I think it's great, right? Never will I ever be a chief information officer or a CTO. My background is not lending itself to that. I probably don't have the audacity or the boldness to be a a founder. I've had too much of a traditional career path. And for me, this is the hybrid role. I get to be as much a tech executive as I ever could uh, dream of. I get to be in a, uh, a rocket ship in an industry of high performance computing infrastructure that is evolving as we speak. And to be in the front row seat as an executive, both as president, but also as CFO, I think really lends itself well. So it's been an extraordinary, I think, ride. It's been one year in the making. And a lot of my friends from banking and from private equity constantly ask and pick my brain. And I, I'm really enjoying the, the challenge. And I have to say, for a lo- first time in a long time, that passion is back in my career that I sort of, you don't say you lack, but you sort of, passion ebbs and flows. And I think sometimes you've been in one industry for too long, it becomes a little... Uh, stale and and stagnated. And so for me, this is just a great uh, realization. And I think also from watching others and experiencing it myself, after such a long period somewhere, you can become somewhat institutionalized where you're still ambitious. You probably still work incredibly hard, driving very hard, probably achieving great results, but you sometimes lose a spark because of that tenure, the length of time you're there. That's exactly right. As much as I'm a f- the finance officer, you know, my other title is also president of the company. And so I have a, a very involved hand in our operations. Unlike my prior roles that were for more market-driven or financial-driven, the day started at a time and it conceivably ended at a time, maybe late for different time zones. But we are we run data centers. Our equipment is running 24 by 7, 365 days a year. But with that sort of higher tempo and much more accountability, I'm actually loving it. My family may not be loving the midnight conference calls. And even at Northern Data, just the team itself, it spans eight hours of time zones. So end of day, London or Frankfurt is still early morning, West Coast, US. You know, so we have a globalization aspect that just requires you to be omnipresent. One recommendation I have for those entertaining global roles, by the way, my this I formed this view working at a bank, is I think there's oftentimes a desire to have a global role. That sounds impressive. It spans multiple time zones. It's usually an expansive. The larger the organization, I think the more challenging that global role becomes because it's about energy. Forget about how well you do your job. Forget about how good you are at your job. It, you know, Having the energy to be sort of omnipresent is a huge challenge, right? Because just that alone, it takes up 
20 hours of your day, let alone how well you're doing it. <laughs> you know, it's like having the energy to be able to convey the emotion, the focus over global time zones is just super hard. And, and I don't think some people are, are built for it. Others thrive in it. And for me, I think I thrive in it, but I'm also supported by a great team. And it makes the amalgamation of the, of the requisite parts all that more exciting. That leads to a very a number of questions, but particularly on that last point is that how do you then achieve some degree of balance or maybe balance is not the goal, but you mentioned you've got a family, presumably you spend some time with them and maybe you watch uh, um, Wayne Gretzky movies or clips of him and old, but how do you then strike that balance of global role, huge scope, which many CFOs have, and you have the additional role of president with some type of other interests? Yeah, you know what? You have to, right? Because I think anyone that loses the focus of the bigger picture, I think, starts to become either, I think you underperform or you leave things behind that you wouldn't want to, and clearly family being first and foremost. For me, I think I've always thought of balance, even when I was a little grad starting in the industry 22, 23 years ago. I think balance is a perspective over a horizon. Any one day, you might be out of balance. Any, any one week, you're out of balance. For periods of time, you're working on a project, you might be out of balance. But the hope is over, over a longer horizon, you can balance that out. So I'm really, I, I focus on taking my holiday. My family may disagree with how focused I am at my holiday at times, but I try to be as present as possible. I love working out. When I'm stressed, my go-to is working out where I can just put the headphones in and sort of zone out for an hour and largely be undistracted other than my own emotional thoughts. And then I think the other part is just spending time with my kids. I think how fortunate my children are comparatively to how I grew up. And it's not that that means anything more than just the opportunities are available to them as, as young children living in a big city in London. I am amazed. I have a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old, and it's I find it uh, motivating to spend time with them because they're at that fun age where I'm important and still impressive to them, but I'm not. they're not so old where I'm embarrassing to them yet. Uh, so we're in that sweet spot. Uh, and there's a few years where that window exists, right? And that window sweet spot is for me right now because when they're 15 and on, I'll be an embarrassment. I'll be a pass. For me, that's the balance. It's hard though. And I think you have to make an effort. And I think you're seeing more now about mindfulness, about mental health and passion. And I think if you have the right requisite ingredients of mindfulness, passion, and healthy distractions, I think you can stay balanced pretty easily. And hopefully the people around you recognize that it's part of their job to help you in that pursuit, right? If they want to see you succeed and they buy into your vision as a family or a friend, that's a good responsibility, I think, to keep it a two-way agreement. You know, you asked a bit about career and development and how it works, but I think for me, it's really important to think, to dream big, have ambition, challenge yourself, take risks. And I think that keeps a career dynamically healthy. And, you know, gone are the days where I think, I don't think it even exists anymore. We're going to spend 30 or 40 years in the same company, let alone same industry. I mean, that was a concept for our parents' generation and a very valued loyalty concept too. I just think people are going to prioritize their own ambitions, their own interests, their own curiosities ahead of their career. And I think those, the meld together here in the startup world, the tech world, or the innovative world really, really well. And perhaps we're seeing some of that in the response to the pandemic as well, because there was already like huge generational attitude shifts. So you get the classic thing of like older generations saying, I'm struggling as a manager or leader with the newer generations coming in because their value system might be a bit different. And I think that the pandemic seems to have accelerated that. Massively. You know, that's a really good point. And so I have family members who are entrepreneurs in their own right, but in more traditional settings, real estate and other. And so they run companies or run businesses. And I'm constantly debating with my mother and father about who's right or wrong in that sort of value proposition because they come from a more traditionalist view. And I am like, well, mom, you might be right as an employer. You're frustrated that the sort of millennial, you know, Gen Z mentality is one of sort of, again, mental health first, me first, you know, what's in it for me. 
I'll have 10 jobs before I'm 30, let alone 10 in my career. That sort of mentality, and, and right or wrong, those millennials, those Gen Zs take up, now constitute two thirds or three quarters of the global uh, labor force. So even if you don't agree with the view, as an employer, you're becoming less desirable by not adopting to the needs of your employees. And so I think if there's one encouragement I give every executive is to not take it too emotionally. The world has changed a lot before the pandemic, and it's changed even more post and during and post the pandemic. And we talk about this great resignation aspect that I think is going to be a fascinating look back of two or three years. Where is everyone gone? I mean, you know, in London, you can't find you know employees. They're really hard to find. The same is true in the US. The same is true in Germany. It really does feel like we've lost like a, a quarter of the population somewhere. They're not accounted for. And the reality is, I think we're going to find out that they started a lot of jobs. People realize they could have two or three jobs that amalgamated into one fulfilling experience. And they may only be part-time. They may be you know, everything from Ubers to Etsy's to self-employed opportunities. And then they're doing their version of entrepreneurship, which I think is really exciting. I think the challenging aspect is that people are going to see, you know, during the pandemic, there was a moment in time where you could have two or three jobs. And, and I think people don't realize how hard that is financially, perhaps, or emotionally, perhaps, or just the volatility of the unknown. And sometimes having an association and a bigger organization, while less desirable, it does take a lot of volatility out of your day life if you have bills and stuff. So I think we're going to probably have some reconciliation in the next few years where people realize they've tried it and it wasn't for them. But kudos to the world for trying it because I don't think they're never going to know if you don't try it. And I think what's interesting as well is we had the emergence of this mega trend of the great resignation and every CFO that we've had on the podcast has spoken about how challenging it is to hire, how challenging it is to keep their great people. And we've had some brilliant ideas about how to do both. But what's interesting now is that with the change in sentiment in the market and like layoffs around as well, is that there's another big force coming in that might actually contradict that, which actually might make it harder for some people to find certain opportunities in certain industries, tech being one. And you alluded to that earlier on, is that this huge bubble that we had seems to be uh, subsiding. And what impact will that have? I, I think it's going to be huge. But I go back to the core tenets of an employer-employee relationship when I was a kid, right? I, I've never thought I worked for a company. I've always worked for an individual. Yeah, I might have been an analyst working for a vice president in a bank, and therefore I worked at a bank. Yes, I mean that obviously figuratively and literally simultaneously. But I think the big role that employers have and therefore managers have is being a manager. Just because the skill set is, is present doesn't mean the tools are utilized. And being a manager is a challenge, right? It is an EQ component. There's an IQ component. There's a time component, an energy component. And I think that the, this is going to allow the good managers to attract the best talent, and it should be, right? And I, and I really think that's an important point for young people as they're thinking of their career. I don't care how well-resourced the company is you're working for. I don't care how accoladed and rewarded and regarded the company may be. If you're working for a person who's not investing in your development, it's irrelevant. And I think as a manager, that is one of the core tenets of being an employer or as a manager. You're supposed to invest in your people. And, you know, I think there's more emphasis on that going forward. You see it already about reskilling and retooling. That's just an example for an underused workforce. What about the core aspects of the stars, right? The people you want to acquire, the A players. And I've had this view for, well, for a while is I tell my children, it's okay to be average in some things. You can't be exceptional in everything. That doesn't work. Like exceptional behavior, exceptional outcomes. You can't be a decathlete and be number one in everything. It just doesn't, I don't think that's feasible. So it's okay to be average in here but to aspire to be something better over there, right? You just can't be exceptional in every category. I think it's too hard. If you think of your average people, you need your C players to do C level jobs. 
the core soldiers, their everyday employees. You have to incentivize them in ways beyond just financial rewards. You have to incentivize them with, with development and I think engagement, make it rewarding with multiple bottom lines, not just simply one. You have your B players. Your B play, and by the way, a C player may aspire to be an A player, but they never will fill the role permanently as an A player because that's well above their skill set. You're asking them to do something that is, they are not simply skilled for. And by asking them to do that, you risk their failure and you risk the failure of your business. I think your B players, while they probably have the possible attitude of an A player, their aptitude is still what somewhat curtailed of being an A player. But you need less of them than your C players, and they fill different roles. This is your probably minus one, minus two leadership level. And then you get to your A players. And I think you're, again, going back to my point of managers and star players, I think you see the importance that these people can have in an organization culture, performance, leadership. You mentioned Wayne Gretzky in the jersey over my shoulder, but why do some teams thrive better than others, right? What is it about the composition of the team and how it's created? And there's a great example, and I probably need to research it better if I'm going to retell it, but the U.S. used to have this all-star basketball team in the Olympics, all these pro players of significance. The first a couple of teams crushed everybody, but by the third or fourth version, they were losing, right? You know, the third or fourth Olympics where they had this, and it just showed that you could have the all-stars, but if you don't have the role players and the C players who do the grinding and the work and everything else, the team is misconstructed or constructed. And everyone wants to be a a leader or a chief and doesn't really earn or deserve the, the respect of the team, you're going to have problems. And that, I think as a corporation and as a company, as an employer, that's super important. And as an executive, it's something I preach constantly in our executive meetings. Are we managing our people? And I don't mean by the, the compliance and the rule book. I mean, literally, are we managing our people for the performance we expect for them and we giving them the right tools to succeed. And so then how do you apply that within your direct team like in the context of like the finance team uh, at Northern Data? Our team has scaled a lot over the last six months. Northern Data, while we're a public company in Germany, and we've been around for the best part of a decade, we've grown a lot, and especially a lot more recently as the professionalization of finance is required. Even my own skills, I have strengths. I have many more weaknesses. I think it's okay to talk of them and highlight them. Hopefully the team in aggregate makes up for my core weaknesses and I'll make up for theirs. I think you have to give clear accountability to your people. No one likes to be micromanaged. You know, have goalposts, have metrics, have KPIs that are a consequence and they're public or at least well flagged so you can manage to them. And then I think you have to be a supporter. I view half my role as CFO or even an executive, the same I did when I was an MD, managing director at, at a bank, is I'm probably one third leader and two thirds cheerleader. The decision can rest on my shoulders if it's wrong. I'll take the accountability. I'll take the responsibility. But Far more important in my role is cheering on my team so they get them to do exceptional things uh, and being supportive. You know, I've worked on my empathy. I think my wife will tell you empathy is probably not one of my core strengths, but I've worked on it a lot, especially because I do think connection with your people is an empathetic connection typically. And you want to drive results during stressful times. It's not through raising your voice. It's not through turning up your temperature. It's not through making it harder. It's actually generally down to listening and connecting to your people. And that's exactly the environment I think we're in right now in tech world, but it's the environment financial world was in 12 years ago in the financial crisis and several times since. It's all too easy just to start yelling and shouting, demanding more minutia and micromanaging. If you do that, you're going to kill your organization. I think you need to, if you've hired well, entrust them, empower them, 
cheer them on, support them. If you haven't hired well, well, then you're in for a stressful period yourself, but there's no point in sort of diluting that stress into other people's world, absorb it yourself because you've created it by not hiring well <laughs> or not retaining so differently. Or if you've had, you've had good people and you lose good people, right? So to me, I think those are really important facets of successfully running our business. And we've adopted uh, some technology, but a lot of it is about separating our business from our accounting and tax controlling. I've regionalized it. We are a company that operates in eight different countries. There's complexity to that. And I don't mean just in taxation, there's complexity in terms of reporting. Yes, you can have your ERP systems, but the fundamental independence of each of our operations is core. So how do I give a business the the rope it has to flourish, but making sure that I can control it at the end of the day financially? And that's through communication and, and a lot of travel. I mean, right now I'm spending probably three weeks a month on the road, which is hugely problematic. I can imagine because going back to that balance, that is tricky. It's hard. I haven't gained 20 pounds or lost my hair yet. So. But you are facing, I'd imagine, a whole world of cancellations with flights, which we've been, all been reading about, right? Correct. And so while the world's coming back online, I still think it's been great being able to utilize this mode of communication we're using right now. I mean, three years ago, before the pandemic, it would have been deemed a, kind of an insult to a colleague or to a partner to suggest we would do a Zoom or a Teams or a, <laughs> a, a virtual meeting as if they weren't meriting the importance of a face-to-face. Whereas now... Quite frankly, people would actually prefer it for the first meeting, maybe the second or third. I still don't think it replaces or displaces the physical rapport of a relationship. And I think that there's one thing I've seen at the conferences and the meetings, there's no shortage of interested parties who have been hiding and quarantining for two years to go to these events and just see others, right? And, and engage and, and listen and learn. And so I think it's a really exciting time, but I think we've now acquired a few tools in our communication toolbox that will allow us to do our business and our jobs better going forward that were probably not as utilized before the pandemic. And then that can complement those in-person things. When you go to those events or you go and visit your teams, your partners in different offices, there is something electric about that initial contact. Even if you've been speaking with them for a long period of time over Zoom or Teams, as you say, video conferences almost added efficiency to the intimacy of like in-person connections. Whereas previously, it was highly inefficient when you would often want to like travel to another country just for a one-hour meeting with someone. Absolutely. And, and I think that's how then when you get that face-to-face time, well, one is you really rejoice in it. It becomes more special. I don't want to say we, we've taken it for granted, but I think we did before. And then when you've been starved of it to such a degree, it actually becomes very powerful. And so here at Northern Data, we do weekly fixes in person. I'm usually the person that sometimes is not there just because I may be traveling someplace else, but I want the finance team weekly in person together, especially as we deal with things that are complex, tax, audit, structure. I mean, I could, we could spend hours. It's a relatively dry subject. I appreciate that. So getting people in a room is a little easier. Otherwise, you know, the downside of the Zoom is you end up looking at the camera, but you're looking at your, your email, you're, you're, you're clicking on other things, I mean, your attention span is a little bit distracting. So I really want the team together once a week, and I try to be there whenever I can in person. But I, I really think there are moments we can build a team and, and getting that sort of collaborative aspect of at least the senior heads, our product heads, and our regional CFOs are really important. And again, that goes back to just driving, I think, a really good mosaic structure where you've got disciplines and expertise, either in a regional capacity or a product capacity, and allow them to complement each other nicely where, again, the knowledge exists in the room and it's shared amongst men. In terms of how you structure the finance team and ways of working, and it probably mirrors the whole company, is there more of an approach to being in the office or is it hybrid? Firstly, I think every company has to do what's best for them, right? And that includes their stakeholders, 
the multitude of them, the employees, the investors, et cetera, because they don't think it's a one size fits all policy. I do think though, that as we get back to collaboration and focus, distance does not necessarily accelerate progress. I think in some companies it can, there's parts of technology that works really well in a disparate state, coding being a great example of that. But I think, you know, for some of the more traditional areas, it's hard because, you know, I can sit with you and we can talk about some tax issues for hours, hours, right? In person, it's far more productive because we can draw it on the board, we can organize our thoughts, we can you know flip through pages. Things of that style are just a little easier. If I had my way, and, and it's a discussion we're having in Northern Data, I would like to have a flexible schedule where people are able to work remotely when able to, but the schedule is synced up. Because I think one of the challenges I'm seeing, not only at our company, but many others, is I come into the office today hoping to see you, Ross, and you're working from home today. And so at that point, that sort of connection or that purpose has been diluted because of your choice. An investor of ours was saying, and this is quite funny because I didn't really agree, and this is now going back three months ago, so a lot has changed in three months for all the industry. Uh, plus the world's come back alive a little bit. I mean, if you've been in New York City or London recently, you'll see there's a lot more traffic. If you've been in an airplane, you'll see there's a lot more traffic. So things have sort of come back quite quickly. But our, one of our largest investors says to me, first of all, he said, two thirds of your people have a side hustle. I'm like, no, come on, really? Do you think? He said, don't miss, you know, a side hustle might just be a passion project. It may be painting or working out. It, it may be yoga or Pilates. It's not suggesting it's a, a job, but it's something that is distracting them from their day job. I, I thought that number was pretty high. I've actually done some work on it. That number may in fact be pretty right, interestingly enough. And I think when I find that out is a lot of people have multiple obligations. Again, HMRC or IRS disclose obligations. They may just be time allegation, but they are, right? Volunteering. So that's, I'm not suggesting it's for nefarious purposes, but it's something other that you couldn't do if you're in your office every day from eight to five. And so what they've instituted is a 90-day remote policy, but those 90 days will be the same 90 days for everybody. It will be July and August and December. Work from the ski slope, work from the beach, work from the beach house, work from your mom and dad's house, work from your sofa, work from home, do as you wish, but you can go only those 90 days, otherwise it's in the office. And I actually think by having a policy, one, that takes the arbitrary nature of the discussion out a little bit, and that's hard. This is, again, with your people, have a policy, you know, address the topic. Don't wait for it to be addressed upon you because it's going to create a lot of friction and issues if you do. So I actually lauded them. And, and since that conversation three months ago, I've done a lot of work on this. I and mean, we're doing that right now to figure out what's best for Northern Data. And we're not there yet, but I do think you want to listen. The world has changed. Your people want some flexibility, but they also want some consistency. And I think you need to find that right balance. And what works for Goldman Sachs and what worked at Carlisle will be different than Northern Data and vice versa. And as you said and alluded to is that sometimes it can just be a company choice is that they might, a company might choose a certain path. And as long as they're clear on the consequences of that, the fact that let's say you go full into the office, there's going to be a group of people uh, in the talent pool who will not consider that option, but that's fine. You can just recruit from the remainder of the people and that's just part of the culture. And and equally, there might be some people who just love that in-person contact and, and they're going to lean towards that. I mean, listen, you're going to see me in the office. Come on into the office. We're in Victoria. I'm in every day uh, that I'm not traveling. I thrive in that environment. I don't do well at home. My wife will concur with that point. The children will concur with that point. I, I start getting involved in things that are not my skill set or commit myself to time that I can't make. So I just disrupt everything. I'm better off not doing that. I'm glad we're back. We're pretty much full staff in the office for those who want to be, but we're not making it a yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that changes. The other point that you just mentioned there that I wanted to touch on, of course, especially given your background in capital markets, is the sentiment change in the last, say, 
maybe since November. November was the peak, and since then it's, it's been fundamental. And in the last like couple of months, huge. When you look at the changes in the public market um, valuations of tech companies, and then that filtering through into private market, of course, and and all the VCs that are funding all of these scale ups around the world. What's your perspective on that, and and how that might unfold um, over the next six, 12 months? I know nobody's got a crystal ball, but CFOs, unfortunately, have the responsibility of trying to forecast these things. I'm super worried about it because you've got several things that we've never seen before as an industry, as a capital markets, as an economy. So in 2008, the housing crisis was a global impact, right? It reached the entire world. But the premise was, and I'll use it in the North American theater context, the premise was you had a house, if the house was worth $100,000 or a million dollars, you borrowed 100% loan to value against that. And because for every day before that day, the house value only went up, right? And so the first time you did that, the house was worth $2 million or $200,000 or $500,000. So you felt victorious in your investment choice. And with that money that you borrowed, you didn't actually go out and buy assets. You went to Disney World, you bought a fancy watch or a car, then those assets generally depreciate or have no future value in it. And then the crash came. And all of a sudden the bank comes and says, well, you owe me more money because your house is valued at a fraction of what it was before. And you say, well, I can't give you my Disney World experience. My fancy watch is less fancy today. My car is 20,000 miles on it. Like I'm bankrupt, I'm broke. But it really was a premise of leveraging an asset at inception and then living off of that forever, right? And so how did that happen in tech? Well, it's been built up over a decade, make no mistake. This is going back to the crisis, zero rates really easy monetary policy globally. ECB had negative rates. You see it here in the UK as well. So access to capital was virtually free. And in some cases you got paid to borrow, right? I mean, said there were bonds that were issued in the corporate theater in Europe that had negative interest rates. That's a fascinating concept, okay? And you get paid to borrow. But let's just say, for example, if you invested, and let's just pick around $10,000, 10,000 euros, pounds into a dog walking app, and that dog walking app went up 100 times, 1,000 times. You've had an extraordinarily great investment. What did you do? You went down to, you know, there's a few banks in the US, a couple on the West Coast who, who let you borrow against your illiquid private positions. And you said, okay, give me a loan, a margin loan against this dog walking app. And he said, great, we'll give you a 75% loan to value. And he said, thank you very much. He took your $750,000 and you invested it in a cat walking app. Okay, the cat walking app went up 30X. And you went back to the bank and you said, okay, I wanna borrow against my cat walking app. It's got whatever that is, $20 million in it now and I'm making up the numbers. And he said, great, I'll give you 75% of the loan to value. He went and bought a elephant walking app. You get my point is you, you rolled that into everything with no liquidity events. And the problem now is it's happened is that very first asset and all the other ones you've margined and borrowed against are down considerably. And so you're seeing that knock on effect of I'm now having to come up with cash I never had before because I, I took my 750,000 and rolled it into a cat walking app. I took my 20 million and put it into an elephant walking app and I don't have that money to meet the margin calls. So what do I do? I have to sell it, but I can't sell private market investments very easily. It's gotten a lot better and there's been a lot of good liquidity, but I think that's all part of the function of the race for irrational outcomes. So you sell your public market stocks and you sell your apples and your Googles and your rack spaces and snowflakes and all of the darlings of the last two or three years because they are the ones that are up the most. And so what are you left with? Well, you've exited your tier one positions and you still have your undervalued rocky positions in the private markets. And so I think this sort of hedging with liquid and illiquid positions is going to continue for the balance of this year as we delever the system. 
And unfortunately, that's going to mean private markets are probably in for a very rocky ride and public markets are, are, are probably going to tag along as well uh, because you've built up an extraordinary amount of value in the growth space of equity markets, both public and private, over the last decade. And then the third part, which is sad but scary, is you're seeing a rising rate path. Central banks now are fighting inflation. Uh, central banks now are concerned about energy pass-through prices. Forget about labor costs for a second. We're all focusing on what it costs for gasoline and oil and petrol. I think you're now creating a perfect storm where, at least in my professional career, we haven't seen really a rising rate environment. We've kind of been crisis babies since the noughties, and here we are in, you know, seeing the uh, potentially the beginning of an inflation war. So I think it's a really big challenge for CFOs. I think it's a really big challenge for private companies because there was a day where one could have argued being private had a cheaper cost of capital than being public because all of these mega private equity and venture funds were being forced to push money out the door because they had to. They had a time uh, limit on their deployable capital, their investment horizon. Obviously, there are some great private equity firms, and there are a lot of tech investors. And I think the tech investors who specialize simply in technology are going to be in a, a very difficult space as valuations have been massively re-rated already. I mean, there are two very well-flagged stories, obviously, of a tech investor, two tech vehicles in, that have lost 20 to $25 billion year to date on just marks. That's a generation of earnings for a large vehicle of its size. Very difficult to make that back in the balance of this year. So I think we're gonna be in a very challenging space. It's been built up with a ton of leverage, which is no different than the housing crisis, is my point. It just, it's not housing this time, it's technology or it's leverage, but it's pretty scary. Of course, it means that we've just followed, in, in particular, the, this pandemic period where these crazy rounds at all levels, A, B, C, D, and I'm thinking private companies for now, and, and alongside these incredible valuations and multiples that are off the charts. I remember when we, when I was at Dropbox, there was at least a, a, bit, a little bit of a fear of like, if the IPO would be a down round on their last private valuation. And in the end, it was like oh, parity, but parity over the course of four years. So it didn't appreciate you. And you could argue about what caused that and so on. But it looks as if down rounds have to be an inevitability over the next couple of years. And I think you're going to see, you know, going back and, you know, how we're running our companies, I've always believed cash flows are king, right? You know, there's a reason why real estate traditionally has done well through any cycle. It's because it's a cash flow instrument, right? Whether you rent your place, lease your place, own your place and rent it out, real estate, commercial, residential, hospitality is generally about cash flows. That's how it's thought of. And I think businesses that are have you know high cash flows that are EBITDA positive are going to continue to thrive. But businesses that have high capex and are a long way from being break even are going to have a lot of challenges. Gone are the days, you know, you used to hear about this Silicon Valley phenomenon where there was no focus on, on profitability. We're all complicit in the crime. Everyone was. The investors were, you know, the entrepreneurs were. The markets it, it rejoiced in that sort of lack of tethered reality. And I think that's an important point for the market as it goes back to basics. Cash flows, profitability are paramount. And as a CFO, if I can't explain, and we are a profitable company, which is good, it doesn't mean we don't have our challenges. But I think, you know, to me, I start and finish with the fact that our revenue is greater than our costs. <laughs> Let's just start there as a simple, basic premise. What we do with it in terms of our CapEx or our growth, because we're obviously in a disruptive, high-growth industry around high-performance computing, it is a CapEx-intensive business. It just means I have to throttle back my expenses and my CapEx and the ambitions to better reflect the dynamic reality. You know, there was a moment where you went for the hill 
Today is not that. Today is where you, I think you want to secure your funding. There's a great article. If you haven't seen it, you should read it. I think it's been tossed around enough where I can't imagine you haven't from Y Combinator. YC put out sort of the rules of the road. And while it feels a little maybe grim to read all those points, I think they're really great reminders. And well-run companies were already doing that. And those who are not well-run are trying to, which is making for a better outcome, right? So I think that sort of scoreboard of shore up your funding, reduce your costs, get your burn rate in order, you know, know what you don't know, model for worst, all of that mentality, it feels cynical, but I think it's actually a really good way to run the company. Be conservative in the I environment guess as you're well in. for a CFO, for you and for any, any CFOs listening, that has to be priority number one over the coming months. Yeah, I think it's right. I mean, you know, most CFOs, I think, are tarred and feathered by being the numbers person, the boring person, but we're storytellers, right? Because you know the story better than anyone because you're the closest to the numbers and the numbers tell a story. How you position that, I think, is one now of conservative nature. Uh, I think you want to be mindful of the environment and your investors, whether they're public or private, are bearing losses somewhere in their portfolio, right? Mm -hmm. So I think being really communicative to investors on what your strategy is, how is the environment impacting your strategy? What are you changing to be, I think, more conservative and more thoughtful for the environment? What supply chain issues are you still facing that aren't resolved? themselves. I mean, no one's faulting anybody, I don't think, or, or can practically fault a company or a CFO for not having resolved supply chains that were exogenously forced upon them in the middle of a pandemic, but not having an answer is inexcusable. You may not have solved it, but you need to know the answer and how you're going to work towards those answers. And so for me, that's about you know working with our team, being highly communicative, both up and down the chain, talking to the board quite frequently so they're not surprised, talking to our investors quite frequently when, when we're not in blackout periods or in, in reporting areas, so I can be very clear. The hard part right now is as we're nearing in June, it's always tough to talk to investors during ending the near the quarter. You know, they want to know how things are going. So you kind of have to have a bit of a stale conversation, unfortunately, because you can't really give them the real-time trading updates. But I think having that sort of open conversation of where things are working well, where there's still work to be done is a good way of just aligning interests because your investors want you to win. That's why they're invested in you, right? Public or private. And I think having that open conversation, because I think the CFO is one of the most important roles you can have because you touch the entirety of the organization and equally your investors. And that's why oftentimes you see the CFO having a huge impact with investors because he or she is the one who has the numbers. He or she is one who's budgeted and drilled down the models and can tell you through the shocks they've taken on to get through your base case or your bull case or your bear case. Uh, I think that kind of transparency is just what investors want to see. And so for me, having been on the buy side at Carlisle, having seen what I think is a great investor in Carlisle, uh, I assume all of our investors are of that caliber. And if you assume they know and they've done their homework, in which case be ready for a spirited debate. Exactly. And, be prepared. and in this time, there's clearly a need for you to be in constant engagement with your investors, but also your team, both your finance team and the broader company are looking to you for guidance and leadership alongside the rest of the executive team. How do you balance those needs? Because you can't choose one or the other, but you might need to overemphasize, say, for example, investors at this period, because it's going to be so critical for future fundraising. I try to balance, you know, the information and discussion. So we speak regularly in you know, our largest investors. I probably speak to them, you know, monthly, giving them a lot more nurturing time uh, when the times are good. So if I do pair back at all, it's not a sign of concern. It's just meet bandwidth and everything else. And again, I think if you're sort of where you're hard on your sleeve and, and are quite transparent, I think investors give you a ton of latitude in these stressful times because it's no better for that you or it is for them. I mean, they may have a broader portfolio, but they understand the challenges you're going through. But I do think cultivation of capital 
formation of capital, having your capital stack, I think, optimized for your company is something that most of us probably had not spent enough time on before this crisis. We took it for granted. So I think you're going to see a lot of stresses in the capital markets as people go to draw down on revolvers or go to draw down on debt markets and see it materially priced. I mean, I'm hearing not necessarily for our space, but more traditional capital markets in real estate and other. I mean, you're seeing nearly a doubling of credit spreads as people are looking to borrow. Now, some of that is a sign of how markets have changed in the last year, but that is a huge impact. If you weren't modeling for that, then shame on you, because not only were you not modeling for it, you weren't even having the conversations you didn't know. And so I, again, I go back to my beginning of saying capital markets for me is where this begins and ends. Everything else in between can be automated, <laughs> you can be digitized, you can add human uh, capital to augment, you can even use vendors and service providers, but your capital markets are really where your company thrives or suffers. Because if you don't have the capital, you can't pay your people, you can't grow, you can't do your business. And thankfully, we spent a lot of time over the past year on that, partly because we bridged two worlds, right? We are a cloud-based you know, infrastructure company. On the one hand, we have a crypto mining arm. On the other hand, we have traditional cloud services. We've got two parts of our body that are running in very distinctly different speeds. The crypto speed up until a month ago was going Mach 1. Uh, you know, the cloud speed was still pretty fast, but not this fast, okay? And so we had to constantly optimize our capital structure. And it, again, it it was never perfect because it's a dynamic moving target, right? Every day we'd wake up, there'd be a different input or a different calculation. I just think, you know, we want to model everything. I have the benefit of having some great partners in our CEO and our founder. He's a visionary and I hopefully can augment his vision with some calculus and some analysis that validate his gut. And, you know, if he's right seven out of 10 times, that's awesome. And if we can make that, you know, now nine out of 10 or, or 10 out of 10 with some calculation and empirical data, then we're in it's really good shape. to hear your view on the capital markets, especially given your, your background. Uh, and now, Chris, as we are drawing the interview to a close, you've touched on a lot of these points already, but maybe like either as a recap or anything that we haven't covered, for anyone who's listening who's an aspiring CFO, maybe who would like to one day emulate you and become a finance leader, um, what advice would you have for them so that they could be successful when the time comes? Firstly, let me start in the back end. You know, success is obviously defined in a myriad of ways. One's career is a story. It's got a number of chapters. Not every chapter is a successful chapter, right? We didn't get a chance to, and we can save that for a follow-up conversation of the dark days. But to me, those are great learning lessons. When did you almost get fired? By the way, I don't mean fired for cause because you did something illegal or whatever. I mean, when did you make a mistake that could have been detrimental to your career? When did you not get that promotion that you thought you deserved? And, and why didn't you get it more often? You didn't get it because someone you know, just didn't pick you. There must have been some issues. And, and if it was just unfortunate luck, then fine. But more often than not, I think people have these blind spots about their own performances and their own shortcomings, their own challenges to sort of not be objectively honest about their own development. So for me, I think one is if you look at your career, it's not linear. I mean, we, executives love saying, here's my first job. Here's my first promotion. By the way, here's my fifth promotion. Here's my big house. Here's my perfect life. Here's my 2.2 kids and white picket fence. And boy, aren't I perfect. And then you look up, you know, I can't be that person because I have bad days. I have hangovers. I have headaches. I get sick. I'm not able to perform at that level. So I think understanding that no one does, but those life lessons when it doesn't go to, to plan are really important because those are fundamentally how you improve. Those are your practice days. Not everything can be a game day. And so for me, you know, looking back and, and being a harsh critic of myself, when have I done well? When am I proud of my performance? When am I embarrassed or I said something that was haste? I would encourage people to get executive coaches. This is like a bit like relationship counseling. I, I think it's there's some sensitivities because it feels like I'm exposing my vulnerabilities of recognizing that, but it's really important because people can give you objective feedback. Solicit a ton of feedback. 
how am I doing? How can I help? What do you need better of? What can I do differently? The stakeholders are all around you. Some of them in your company, some of them may be investors or outside. By the way, don't be afraid to ask the most junior person that. Do you know how, how much you're going to make their day and probably get really informative feedback of how the organization sees you when you ask the most junior person in the room, what can you be doing better personally? What can I personally do better to help them or to help the company? Because they're going to see it dramatically different, right? They're not seeing it top down. They're seeing bottom up looking up that hill. And I think if you have that level of empathy and transparency and connection with your people, that's how you become a successful executive. So that's the first part. The second part, I think I'm a, a living, breathing example of it, is there's not one way to be a CFO or a financial leader. There's a host of different skills that you need to have in the organization to be successfully financially run. You know, you can come through the audit channel, you can come through the operations channel, you can come through accounting, you know, a financial analyst who is really a domain expert. But having familiarity with all those areas just helps you tie it together and get the most out of your team. But not one is more important than the other because as the CFO, I can tell you tax is an extremely complex matter. Going across eight countries and all the jurisdictions is almost mind-blowing, <laughs> okay? Uh, so you're going to take on a lot of advice from others. But I think having the confidence that you can be a good leader is most important. And for me, I'm extremely confident in my leadership abilities. I've thrived and enjoyed being challenged. It's definitely a stretch assignment, but I, I think my leadership style and my management style is really conducive to getting the best out of an aspirational team. And that's what we're doing in Northern Data. It's been you know, a whirlwind the last year. I can't wait to see what the next year has in store. If this is only the first 365 days, what are the next? But I think it's an extremely exciting environment to be in technology. No one day is like the other. And you're working with some really extraordinary people. And I've had the pleasure of working with extraordinarily talented people in my career at Carlisle, at Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley. And I would put the people and my partners in Northern Data on par with those individuals, maybe with a different domain expertise. But make no mistake, the talent pool that is in the disruptive world of technology is as capable and able as anywhere else. And it's really exciting. Brilliant advice and, and fascinating to hear. Chris, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much for us. And I look forward to speaking to you again. One last thing. We want to learn from you, our listeners, to learn how we can make the CFO playbook even better. Head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.